Welcome to the fifth instalment of the DLA Piper Technology Disputes podcast, Get IT Right. Over the course of this six-part series, we are providing practical advice for both technology companies and companies who do business with technology companies. In the first three episodes, we focus on ways to safeguard projects from potential disputes, before then, in the previous episode, starting to offer some thoughts on how to deal with a dispute if one should arise. That is a theme that we are going to continue to develop in this episode. The series is also accompanied by a number of related articles, which will be published on the DLAPiper.com website. Hello, I'm Simon Kenyon, a litigation and regulatory partner at DLA Piper, and I also co-head DLA Piper's UK and international technology disputes practices. I'm joined today by my colleague, Sarah Ellington, a legal director in our technology disputes team. Both Sarah and I specialise in providing legal advice regarding disputes related to technology contracts, and we welcome you to this, our fifth episode in this podcast series. We are delighted to be presenting this podcast series, and you can hear from us and others in DLA Piper's technology disputes team in all episodes. In today's episode, we will be focusing on the dispute resolution options for handling technology disputes. Now, in previous episodes, we heard that parties to a technology contract should give some thought to what potential issues might arise and how the business might protect itself from the very outset of the deal in case things should go wrong in the future. So, Sarah, that's presumably a view you would endorse. Yeah, absolutely. I find that people often don't think about how they're going to resolve disputes at the outset of the contract. Of course, at that time, they're happy to be entering into a new relationship, excited about what they're going to achieve together. And no one really wants to be thinking about potential disagreements and issues at that stage. But it is really important to plan ahead and to make sure that you have the best tools at your disposal to resolve any dispute if and when it does arise. Yes, and the main options that probably immediately spring to mind for most lawyers and their clients in relation to technology disputes, and that's also broadly true, I'd say, of other commercial disputes, are litigation in court proceedings, arbitration, expert determination, and perhaps mediation. But there are also a few newer schemes which we've seen emerging, haven't we? Yes, that's right, Simon. Uh, So the past two to three years have also seen the launch of two new schemes, They're both specifically aimed at the fast, efficient and cost-effective resolution of specific technology disputes. These schemes are the Digital Dispute Resolution Rules, which were published on the 22nd of April 2021, and the Society for Computers and Law Adjudication Scheme, that was launched on the 15th of October 2019, I'll refer to that as the SCLA. And we'll talk about these a bit more as we go through the relevant options. There has also been a rise in the adoption of what we might call relational contracts, which include provision for a formal dispute resolution board. That's a sitting board which seeks to resolve disputes as and when they arise and can either be on a binding or a non-binding basis. It's something which is more widely adopted in the Nordics, but is increasingly being used in English contracts as well. Okay, so those are some of the options, but in terms of which ones are used, the the starting point has to be the dispute resolution clause in the contract, assuming there is one, hence the need to think ahead. So what considerations ought there to be when drafting a dispute resolution clause? So I would say that there are five main things to consider. Firstly, the type of technology involved. Secondly, the types of dispute likely to arise. Thirdly, 
the relationship between the parties. Fourthly, the remedies sought. And fifth, enforcement. Okay, and just before we look at each of them more closely, a question which sometimes comes up for clients is, well, what if a dispute later arises which was not envisaged at the time of contracting? And in particular, are the parties necessarily stuck with the choice they made at the contracting stage? Well, that very much depends on what you're able to agree with your counterparty. If the parties are able to agree, it's absolutely open to you to agree to amend the provisions relating to dispute resolution and go for a different option once the dispute has arisen. I'd also say that many of these options can be used in combination. In particular, mediation is often effectively used alongside more formal binding procedures. And when non-binding, expert determination or adjudication style procedures, such as the FCLA, can potentially act as a precursor to formal court proceedings. This can give the parties an early objective indication of the strength of their case, help them to decide whether it's worth going through the time and expense of more formal court or arbitration proceedings. Okay, that's helpful. So let's start at the beginning of your list. You mentioned the type of technology involved. What types of technology might merit specific consideration? Well, as we just mentioned, the past few years have seen the emergence of some new schemes, one of which is the Digital Dispute Resolution Rules. And that's designed to facilitate rapid, innovative and cost-effective resolution of legal disputes concerning digital technology. Things like crypto assets, cryptocurrency, smart contracts, distributed ledger technology and fintech applications. So if you're contracting around one or more of these technologies, it definitely is worth considering one of these schemes, particularly if, as we'll discuss in more detail, coming on to the latter issues for consideration, you're looking for a quick decision. The scheme also allows an option for arbitrators to implement their decisions directly on chain using a private key. So that could really cut down on enforcement issues if that's a major worry for you. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think that is one of the areas that will develop in the next 10 years or so as technology develops at an ever-increasing rate. So the law surrounding technology has to try to keep up. And almost inevitably, when it comes to the development of the law, which in truth is always slower than the pace of technological change, it takes time for disputes to come through. And as a result, there is a time lag on establishing the best and most efficient ways to resolve technology disputes, particularly where the technology is cutting edge. So moving on to the types of disputes which are likely to arise, which you mentioned also, a number of the disputes which we deal with are often very technical. They are dependent on arguments as to whether software works as it was designed to do so, whether certain design principles were followed, issues with code or coding, be that customization or configuration. So is there an option particularly suited to this type of technical dispute? Well, Many of the more traditional, well-established options that we discussed at the beginning are very well able to deal with technical disputes. So, for example, the judges at the English Technology and Construction Court are well known to be adept at dealing with technical disputes, albeit that they will almost always require the assistance of expert witnesses from both parties. A number of the other available mechanisms, however, allow the appointment of a technical expert either as opposed to or in addition to a lawyer, as an arbitrator or adjudicator. So schemes such as the SCLA allow for the appointment of a single expert adjudicator or a lawyer who has the power to appoint their own technical experts. 
and many arbitration rules also allow the parties to specify a panel of arbitrators. The parties in that case could choose to specify that one or more arbitrators hold specific technical expertise. Yeah, and that all makes sense where there is a technical issue. But of course, that is not always the case. Sometimes there is no dispute as to whether or not the technology works. But the dispute is actually around something which might be considered much more generic or commonplace. For example, the interpretation of a contractual clause, such as a payment mechanism. Yeah, so whether dispute is over what we might call a a legal or contractual interpretation issues, the parties might feel more comfortable having the dispute determined by someone with a legal background. Each of the schemes we just mentioned also cater for a lawyer to be appointed, supplementing their expertise as necessary. So if the clause is one which is used across a number of contracts, whether the contracts are the supplier or the customer, or one or more of the parties might want to consider bringing the issues before the courts in order to obtain a final binding decision as to the meaning of the clause. And that could then be applied across all of the relevant contracts, bringing more certainty. Yes, and of course, the converse is also sometimes true, that one of the parties would really rather not have such a clause tested and determined by a judge, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. In which case, something like a confidential arbitration might be the best option. Although you always need to bear in mind that arbitration decisions do sometimes become public, where they're referred to in connected proceedings in the supervising court, for example. So there are some aspects of the English Arbitration Act that allows for a party to make an application to the court to determine a question of law which arises in the proceedings, or alternatively, the court might hear a challenge on the basis of irregularity or an appeal on the point of law. So if a party is really serious about both confidentiality and the finality of the arbitration award as well, they might wish to agree, for example, in the contractual dispute resolution clause providing for arbitration, to exclude those sections of the Act so that the confidentiality can't be broken in that way. Okay, understood. So third in your list was the relationship between the parties. So some of the disputes which we see mark the end of the relationship, the parties have perhaps finished a project or even brought it to an early end, meaning that one or probably both of them are not particularly happy with the outcome, whilst others may happen at the outset or even in the middle of a long-term relationship. So with that in mind, what special consideration does the timing of dispute in the life cycle of the project require? To my mind, it absolutely does require consideration. So in the example where there is necessarily an ongoing commercial relationship between the parties and perhaps they need to keep working together to achieve the next stages of the project, there tends to be a real impetus towards getting disputes resolved as quickly as possible. So the parties can put any disagreements behind them and incorporate any relevant outcome into their ways of working going forward. This means that for technical or contractual interpretation issues arising in a long-term contract, Swift and uncomplicated schemes, where parties don't potentially spend years getting into entrenched positions and ever more complicated arguments, are often to be preferred. So here I'm referring to adjudication-style schemes, such as the SCLA, and also things like mediation, which can provide for a wide range of potential outcomes, including potentially renegotiation of certain aspects of the contract, and that's based on finding a mutually acceptable solution. But then on the other end of the scale, the project or contract might already have ended. The parties might not have any other ongoing commercial relationships. 
And as you point out, the dispute may even be about termination itself, which has already taken place. And in those circumstances, there may be little need to ensure that a dispute is resolved swiftly. And actually, maybe the amounts at stake demand a more rigorous process, such as that provided by the court or a full arbitration. Okay, so moving to your fourth consideration and the relevance of likely remedies that might be needed, it won't always be possible to either wait until a decision is made or an agreement is reached between the parties in order for one of the parties to get the remedy it needs. Technology systems are often business critical, of course, and sometimes even the shortened timescales you've mentioned of around three months under the the SCLA scheme won't move quickly enough. And I'm thinking particularly about the situation where one of the parties, more often the customer, but not necessarily so, needs to compel the other party to do something the contract obliges it to do, or alternatively to refrain from doing something it shouldn't. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Simon. And one of the key considerations that might point towards including a dispute resolution clause, which provides for court proceedings, is whether there's a situation in which you might need the court to grant an injunction. And that's usually the type of situation where you need to, for example, prevent a supplier withdrawing key services pending the resolution of your dispute. Now, maybe 10 years ago, if a party had incorporated an arbitration clause into their contract, but needed an urgent interim injunction to preserve the status quo, perhaps pending the decision of an arbitral tribunal, the only practical option might have been to ask the supervising court for an injunction in support of the arbitration. However, in more recent times, many of the major arbitral institutions have introduced emergency arbitrator provisions. Those incorporate a short procedure for the appointment of a tribunal to consider urgent issues such as injunctions. And this, in turn, has led to the court, in some instances, to refuse to grant a court injunction, saying that the party should make use of the emergency arbitrator provisions instead. And that, of course, can lead to issues with enforcement of interim injunctions, potentially with severe consequences for businesses who might be unable to ensure the continuity of business-critical services whilst they sort out the rest of their dispute. Okay, so just taking that term one stage further, and if you might need an injunction, would you recommend a court-based injunction jurisdiction clause or an arbitration-based one? So it's not a simple black and white choice. I think there are a number of different factors at play when choosing. Now, arbitration, for example, is often favoured where you might need to enforce a decision abroad because given the wide reach of the New York Convention, this allows for enforcement of arbitral awards in quite a few different jurisdictions. It is actually possible to have a kind of hybrid clause whereby you might carve out emergency arbitration provisions from your arbitration clause and in that case specifically allow court proceedings where an injunction might be necessary. But you would need to be mindful in that case of potentially needing, for example, to appoint a process agent to receive service of English court proceedings where your counterparty is not domiciled here. Okay, so you mentioned enforcement there in the context of arbitration and the fact that arbitration often is preferred where you might need to take enforcement steps outside of the jurisdiction where a third party has adjudicated on the dispute. You also mentioned it, of course, at the start as one of the five considerations when putting in place a dispute resolution procedure clause. So what other enforcement related issues are there to bear in mind when considering the makeup of a dispute resolution provision? 
Yeah, so I'd say you really do need to think about enforcement at the earliest possible stage, ideally when you're contracting. It might be that you're actually confident that your contractual counterparty will comply with any award or order without you needing to take any further action. If that's the case, then also depending on the other considerations that we've been discussing, you might be happy to go with one of the less formal methods of dispute resolution. Let's say, for example, expert determination, the SCLA scheme, which only becomes binding determination if not challenged in the court within a month, and might also still need to be recognised by the English court, albeit hopefully under a simplified procedure. And those things are things that you might need to consider if you need to go through formal enforcement channels. Alternatively, if both you and your counterparty are based in England and all your assets are here, it might make sense to go for English court proceedings, where the outcome is going to be automatically enforceable once an order becomes effective. For other methods, or for an enforcement against assets outside the jurisdiction, you're likely to have to go back to court to have a decision recognised before any more formal steps can take place. So, following Brexit, there is of course no automatic recognition of English judgments in the EU, and in that case it might be more attractive to seek recognition of an arbitration award for enforcement abroad. Because for arbitration awards, there are much more limited grounds on which recognition and enforcement can be refused. Arbitration proceedings are also generally much simpler to serve on parties outside the jurisdiction. Unless, of course, as we mentioned before, a process agent has been validly appointed to receive service in the jurisdiction. Okay, that's fair. And I suppose that enforcement also requires a final decision to have been made. So what considerations are there in relation to appeals? Yes, I'd say probably the most final of all the methods would be to use the digital dispute resolution rules in a case where the parties have provided the adjudicator a private key to implement the decision on chain. So it can all happen automatically. In second place, I'd probably put arbitration, which can only be challenged on limited grounds. But then at the other end of the spectrum might be a decision of the SCLA, which can effectively be appealed through the English courts if a party decides not to accept the adjudicator's decision within a month of it being given. Court decisions can, of course, be appealed, but again, that's only on limited grounds. So in summary then, I guess, there's a lot to think about when making these choices. So any final thoughts to leave us with? I think really that you should just take some time to think about what might go wrong, even if that's not what you want to do at the kind of happy period at the beginning of a contract, and try to make provision for those things that might go wrong. I'd always say, of course I would, that speaking to a disputes lawyer to get their experience on similar contracts is always a good idea. I think the other thing is that perhaps listening to our conversation, people might be tempted to draft an incredibly complex clause, which might set out different dispute resolution provisions based on different scenarios. I would probably steer away from that because, in my experience, complicated clauses can actually just lead to further arguments about the interpretation of the clause and whether the correct procedure has been followed, and that would be in addition to arguments around the underlying dispute. So, although the lawyers would probably find it very interesting to argue about these points of procedure, it's unlikely that a business would want to incur the time and cost of dealing with that especially, I would say, at a time when the business may already be under strain from a project not having gone to plan. Also, as we mentioned at the beginning, 
just bear in mind that it's always open to the parties to reach a new agreement on dispute resolution provisions after a dispute has arisen. Good lawyers definitely should see the benefit in choosing the most appropriate method, even in a case where the parties are simply intractable over the substantive dispute itself. Thanks, Sarah. That's a really helpful conclusion. So that really brings us to the end of the fifth episode of the DLA Piper Technology Disputes podcast, Get IT Right. We hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. Please also look out for the article which accompanies this episode, which will also be shortly available on the dlapiper.com website. Also look out for episode six, the final episode in this series, which will also be available in a few weeks' time, when I'll be joined by my colleague Marie Fegan to discuss evidential considerations in the context of a technology dispute. Thank you for listening.